Um, John 10, 22 to 42. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in the Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were, who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in the law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father sent set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless sorry, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. In prayer. Coffee. Father, Lord, God in heaven, who are we to stand in your presence? Your words are so filled with power they, they spoke the universe into being they speak life from death Lord help us to hear you in these your words in John chapter 10 help us to hear and really hear here in our hearts, here and be moved, here and be transformed, here and be lifted up to a deeper love and knowledge of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The striking image that's at the heart of these verses in John chapter 10 is of a hand being held so tightly that those who are in that hand, nothing can snatch them away. It's a picture of absolute safety, absolute security. And I wonder if that's how you feel this evening. Do you feel 
held securely. Do you feel held at all? Can you see the appeal of being held securely, but you wonder why it has to be Jesus doing it? Is, is there no other way? Is there no other name? Or does it feel perhaps like Jesus may be holding you, but his, his grip is quite loose? His heart may not be in it, or his strength may not be enough, that whatever is trying to, to pull you out of his hand to, to snatch you away tonight, whether it's something from the outside, someone saying something, some opposition you're facing, some obstacle you're facing, or perhaps something from the inside, some temptation rising up from within, trying to pull you away. This is what Jesus wants to offer us tonight, being held securely. And he does this at the festival of dedication. Verse 22, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now, the festival of dedication was also known as, as Hanukkah. It's a, cel- it's a celebration that the Jews still have today, each year, each winter. It, and Hanukkah just means dedication. Now this festival, unlike all the, o- the other ones we've been seen, so actually Jesus has been working his way through in John's Gospel. He's been working his way through some of the main festivals and feasts and special days of the Jewish calendar and showing how each one of them really points to him. Each one of them kind of has some theme or central idea or longing that is met only lastingly in him. But here he's doing this with one that that isn't actually from the Old Testament. It isn't one that was commanded. It's one that has come from their history. So we're going to have to do a little bit of history here. And for some of you, I know, that's going to set your heart racing. Yes, history time. Others, this may be a little bit of an exercise in patience, but I'll try and show how it connects to to what Jesus is saying here, that all this background is going to really help us appreciate some of the richness of what Jesus is doing, saying these things at this festival. So about 330-ish years before Jesus was born, another famous person from history, Alexander the Great, launched his famous conquest, started in Macedonia with his army. They swept eastwards 3,500 miles all the way to the edge of India, just rapidly conquering everything in their path. Every nation tumbled before them. In about a decade, Israel was included in that. They were a small nation. They didn't stand a chance. They ended up under Greek rule. Now, Alexander died young. He didn't live into a ripe old age to appreciate his achievements. And when he died, the empire that he had won with his army was divided among his generals. And over the centuries, these generals and, and their heirs and others fought and ruled over all the things that had been won in this conquest. But generally what the trend was, was that they ruled with an increasing pressure in those nations to adopt their Greek language, their Greek culture, their Greek religion, including their gods. 
And for the Jews, that obviously went against everything that they were meant to stand for. They were called to worship the one true God, to worship only him. That was what they were called to do. But in the face of pressure, in the face of someone trying to to snatch them away from God, actually the Jewish leadership just collapsed. They, They absolutely capitulated. They gave in and they sought security in their Greek occupiers rather than in the God who had promised that if if you trust me, I will be there, I will protect you, I will fight your battles, I'll win your battles. There there were some who were faithful. Um, There were a small number, a a remnant, you might say, of those who who kept um, living by the truth. But generally, many including especially the leaders, joined the Greek side. But there were these two factions, and and it it, used to to bubble up sometimes into civil wars. Um, They would come, they would fail, they would go. But finally, one of them um, got so bad that we're about 167 BC now that the Greeks decided to go for the shock tactics and to absolutely demoralize these faithful Israelites. The Greek soldiers went into the temple. They went into the most special, sacred place for the Jews. They went in there and they desecrated the temple of God. They burned the copies of the scriptures that were held there. They sacrificed unclean animals on the temple of the altar where only sacrifices to to God were to be made. They sacrificed to their God. They sacrificed unclean animals to their idols, which they set up in the temple's holy place. It was an absolute psychological warfare on the Jews. It, It struck at the heart of everything that they stood for. And it provoked them to fight back even more. And eventually, the freedom fighters won. And after they won, they rededicated the temple. They they rededicated it to be for God's service, for God's glory. And that's what this festival, which means dedication, commemorates. It, It remembers when they cleaned, when they rededicated the temple. But this festival was a time for the nation of Israel to reflect back on everything that had happened before that that dedication. Really to reflect on the theme of leadership. How had the leaders, the teachers of Israel, those who were supposed to teach God's word and, and encourage the people to keep going and to trust God, how had those leaders allowed it all to get so bad? And there was a forward looking part of it as well. What kind of leader can keep the people secure? What kind of, people, what kind of leader can we look to so this kind of thing, this horrific kind of oppression won't happen again? Especially they're, they're celebrating this, they're commemorating this under a time of Roman occupation. So that's the historical background, but I think this can still speak to us today because Aren't we also interested in a leader who could do this for us? A leader who would be incorruptible, who would be fearless. A leader who is able to protect us against any threat, who is able to hold us so securely that even death can't get us. I think eventually we realize we can't give ourselves that kind of security. We might try and we might try and fool ourselves. But eventually, 
However hard we, we try, we, we run into our limits and we realize actually we need someone else. We need to look to someone else for that kind of security. Is there a leader out there who can give us that? And we've also had this theme of leadership kind of building up in the previous chapters of John that we've been in in the past couple of weeks. So in chapter 9, we saw all these wrong attitudes to leadership. We, we saw people having a blind trust in leaders or a blind fear of their leaders. We saw in the leaders a blind confidence in themselves. And then in chapter 10, in the first part of chapter 10, Jesus has presented himself as the alternative, as the good shepherd who cares for us, who lays down his life for us. And here in this festival of leadership, Jesus and his opponents clash over his claim to be the leader that we really need. Just thinking on the way here, he's standing standing there teaching in this place called Solomon's Colonnade. This was one of the the oldest parts of the temple. It was believed to date back to before all this stuff went wrong, to the era of Solomon, which was as deeply flawed as Solomon was. This was an era they looked back to as a golden age, a golden age with a king who was wise and a king who, who led them to have a good life a time when the nation was secure. So it's just subtly Jesus is inserting himself, even in the the little details of when and where he chooses to say this. In this festival about leadership, Jesus is claiming to be the leader we really need. And there's this clash between Jesus and his opponents over two of the claims that Jesus makes about himself, and here he gets really clear and gets right to the heart of who he is. He makes two claims about himself. First, that he is the Messiah, the Christ. Second, that he is the Son of God. Let's look at each of those in turn. In verse 24, the Jews who were gathered round him, the Jews who were there gathered round him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The Messiah was the promised leader. He was the anointed king, the chosen leader, the one who God had promised would come and save his people, rescue them, and hold them safe in his hand. Rule them well in an everlasting golden age. Protect them from all their enemies. The Messiah was really the answer to that Hanukkah longing for good leaders who will give us security, real security, a leader who could protect us from attacks from the outside and who wouldn't allow us to be led astray from the inside too. but they gather round him with this question. When it says gathered round him, it's really the same word that is used elsewhere in the Bible for enemies surrounding a city to attack it. This is not a curious crowd. This is a hostile crowd. 
They are not open to the possibility that Jesus might be the leader that they need. If this is the good shepherd, then they are a pack of wolves circling around. You see, as soon as they get a clear answer, they're there with stones in their hand and they're shooting to kill. Are you the Messiah? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I did tell you. Now, Jesus hadn't openly been saying to the crowds, I'm the Messiah. That's partly because of the whole Greek invasion and then revolt and then their the Roman occupation in the present, that they developed this very political, militaristic expectation for the Messiah. And so to claim to be the Messiah publicly would lead to a lot of misunderstanding. It could trigger a violent revolution and that could in turn provoke an even more violent response from the Romans. And at this festival, essentially commemorating the overthrow of an occupying power that was an especially charged atmosphere. And so Jesus sometimes privately says he's the Messiah, but in public he takes a different approach. He shows how he is everything the Bible promised the Messiah to be in two ways. He does it through his works, and he does it through his words. See in verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's returning to that claim that he made earlier in chapter 10 to be the good shepherd, to be God, come to his people like a shepherd comes to his sheep, to rescue them, to protect them, to lead them to life to the full. And there was this repeated emphasis that Jesus' sheep are those who know his voice. But these people Jesus is speaking to here, they can't recognize the voice of the good shepherd. They can't sense God in what Jesus is saying, in the words that he's saying, but also they can't sense God in the miraculous works that he's doing. And so Jesus steps it up a notch and makes it even clearer what his works and what his words are saying. Not just that he's the Messiah sent by God to rescue and to rule God's people. He's also claiming to be the son of God. Verse 28. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See the things he pairs up there. He he pairs up giving us eternal life with us never perishing. There's two ways of saying the same thing. Two ways of describing the same action. That as he gives us eternal life, we never perish. See what else he pairs up in these verses. No one snatching his sheep 
out of his hand with no one snatching sheep out of his father's hand. He's presenting himself and God the Father as one, as absolutely united. And the Jews recognize this can mean only one thing. The the wolf pack has found their moment to attack. Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Their issue isn't with the works of Jesus, with what Jesus has been doing. They've kind of separated out Jesus, the good man, and the miracle worker from Jesus explaining why and how he is doing those things. And so they end up with this inconsistency where they kind of believe the works. They can't really deny that he's doing miracles and that these are generally good for the people who he's helping. That there's simply too much evidence around and plenty of that evidence is still around today. But the irony is that the works which they accept were there to confirm the words which they still don't accept. So they believe the works happened, but they can't explain them. And Jesus is surrounded by this angry mob now. They're ready to kill him. He needs to calm them down. And the problem is his words. And so what he says next is going to be really key. Is it really so wrong to say, I'm the son of God, Jesus says. He answers with this very unexpected quote from the Old Testament, and it it kind of stops them in the tracks. It makes them stop and think. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? So Jesus is making an argument that the word God is used in more than one way in the Bible. The verse he quotes is from Psalm 82. And whenever someone in the New Testament is quoting from the Old Testament, they're usually not just quoting the the single line or or the bit that they say. They're usually kind of trying to draw in the rest of the context. So let's turn back to Psalm 82. And let's just see what is going on in that psalm. If you have the Blue Church Bibles, it'll be page 594. Psalm 82. And let me read Psalm 82, the Psalm of Asaph. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among 
the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. This is a very fitting psalm for this festival's theme of leadership, isn't it? This is a psalm in which those being addressed are rulers. They are corrupt leaders. And Jesus draws on this psalm in quite an interesting way, in a way that at the same time calms them down, but also infuriates them even more. It calms them down because, as he said... It's not only God that can be called God. Leaders can be called gods with a, with a small g and sons of the Most High because of their connection to God, capital G, that they, they lead on his behalf. And in that sense, Jesus can say, well, I haven't really claimed anything extraordinary for himself. But in another sense, if we really pay attention to this psalm and and how Jesus is using it, he's not backing down at all. He's not backing down from this claim. He's reinforcing it. He's not just playing word games about the meaning of God. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, could it not also be the case that this bigger thing is true? If Ordinary human leaders can be called in the Bible gods or sons. Couldn't that be a pattern or a preview of something even bigger? Couldn't that be a preview of God becoming human to lead his people himself? What if God's answer to that prayer at the end of Psalm 82 Rise up, O God, judge the earth. What if God's answer was to set apart his son and send him into the world? The psalm ends with a cry to God to come and be the leader that we need, a leader who does justice, a leader who cares for the weak. The small G gods have failed. We need the big G God to come and lead us well. Here, Jesus is taking that upon himself. Jesus using this psalm infuriates them even more because he's he's actually not just making this spectacular claim about himself. By implication, he's applying the rebuke of this psalm to the leaders of his day. 
Just as the rulers in this psalm are walking about in darkness, Jesus has called the Jewish leaders of his day, at the end of chapter 9, blind. And Jesus promised here that those who hear his voice will never perish. Stands in contrast to those who he said, you are not hearing my voice. And these small g-gods in in Psalm 82, they will die. Die like mere mortals. But Jesus is kind even here. Even as they stand there, rocks in hand, ready to kill him. Here's the response of Jesus. Inviting them to know him. One last time. Don't believe me unless I do the works of my Father, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. But again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Jesus knows they are not recognizing his voice. doesn't stop him speaking to them. He asks that if you, if you won't listen to the words, at least pay attention to what I'm doing. At least look at this overwhelming weight of evidence of these miraculous, amazing things that I'm doing. I think that's a challenge to all of us today. Perhaps if you are struggling with the words of Jesus, why not try reckoning with all the evidence about what he has done? about all these eyewitness accounts of these miracles that he's done, all these eyewitness accounts of him risen from the dead. How else can we explain that? How else can we explain what he's doing except that he is the Son of God? And as he's done several times, John kind of ends this little episode with a contrast Some refuse Jesus, but some don't. And as I I just read these last few verses back in John 10, you see if you can notice what's different about these people. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John has said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Many believe here, and for them it is not the works, is it? It's the words they believe the words, that their trust in Jesus comes not directly from his works or even from his words. They credit it to John's words, and they specifically say John did not perform signs. He didn't do any miracles. He just had the words. And people might say, if I just see Jesus directly do something amazing, 
If If I see him do this miracle, if I see him answer this prayer for me, then I will believe. But what John actually shows us here is a bunch of people who did see that kind of spectacular miracle and stand there with rocks in their hands ready to kill Jesus. And a bunch of people who didn't see that kind of miracle, and in fact, they just heard somebody else talking about Jesus who did believe. John had no impressive signs at the time he was speaking. He simply spoke about Jesus. And what he said was seen over time to be true. What a huge encouragement to us as we tell our friends about Jesus. That, That we're laying the massive foundation for faith simply by talking and saying true things about Jesus. And in time, perhaps they will be able to see the works and the words of Jesus are true. Maybe like here, years later, and after we're no longer around. But we can leave the vindication to God. Our role is simply to tell people Jesus is the leader that we need. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But let's come back to where we started. Because this passage spends a lot of time talking about who the leader that we need is, but it also tells us what this leader gives, why we needed that leader in the first place. Remember that that festival of dedication backdrop, that need for a leader who can protect us, who is incorruptible, who is fearless. And here's what Jesus as leader gives you. Just look back at verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus is the Son of God, and he and the Father are absolutely one in this. Then aren't these the safest hands in the universe? This is what Jesus as leader gives you. He gives you eternal life, life to the full, life that cannot be snatched away from you. Eternal security. There will be attacks. There will be people who try to snatch you away from Jesus. There'll also be temptations from within that you might somehow try to snatch yourself away from Jesus' hands. But Jesus can promise his sheep, you will never perish. Your body that you you have now may die but you will receive a new everlasting one. There is life, life that does not end, life in God's presence, life with the fullness of joy. He promises all that because he's secured it. He has laid down his life for his sheep. He has defeated our death for us. That's why there is no death for you. 
He has taken your full death. He's taken all the judgments for your sins for you on the cross, and he rose again. In him, you are now free from the fear of death, the fear of judgment. That is the promise for his sheep. And that sounds wonderful, but you might be thinking, yes, but is that the promise for me? That's all very well for this unspecified group of sheep. But how do I know that's me? How do I know that these promises apply to me? How can I be confident that I am his sheep? It has to be said that our felt experience of the eternal security given by Jesus doesn't always match up to the actual reality of it. Many who are his sheep don't feel secure at all. As we've seen repeatedly throughout John's Gospel, many who are not his sheep are blindly confident and feel secure when they shouldn't be. Before I was working for a church here, um, I used to work for an online ministry answering Bible questions. Um, I used to do that for about 18 months. And over that time, I think I answered thousands of questions about the Bible. And my impression was that about a third of them were about this. How can I know that I'm really a Christian? How can I know that I'm a sheep? How can I know that I'm saved? We all struggle with this in all kinds of ways. So if you are worried about this, don't be ashamed to admit that. It's a very normal thing for Christians to face and to feel. Do talk to me, talk to another Christian you know about it. But do you also notice Jesus' description of his sheep? He makes these great promises to his sheep, but who does he think his sheep are? He says, my sheep listen to my voice. They follow me. That is the characteristic of Jesus' sheep in his sight And that's the sight that matters. His sheep are those who listen to his voice. Those who follow him. And actually this can be a way for us to be reassured that these promises are for us. That you can look at your own life and ask, am I doing that? Am I listening to Jesus? Am I following him? And if yes, then you can have this confidence. You can have this kind of confidence, this absolute security, this assurance that you are saved, you are safe in his hand. If you're not listening to Jesus' voice, if you're not following him, you can't. It says that in verse 26. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Only his sheep can believe, 
So if you are believing, you must be his sheep. It's as we follow his voice that we grow in confidence that he is holding us securely. Let me leave you with just two words, two one-word sentences to remember whenever you feel afraid that you are not safe in Jesus' hand, that Jesus is not going to be strong enough, or that you are the exception. You are the one who's going to be snatched away. Whatever external or internal things are trying to snatch you away, Let me leave you with two one-word sentences. Hearing, held. Hearing is a question. Am I hearing Jesus? Do I try to listen to his voice? When I listen, do I try to follow what he's saying? Do I try to hang my life on his promises, on his instructions, on his leadership? Hearing? If the answer is yes, go to the second. Held! Exclamation mark. If you are hearing, you are being held by Jesus. Of course, none of us are perfect. None of us are sinless yet. But if the basic orientation of your life is, I want to follow Jesus, I want to hear what he has to say, and go with that. And you can sleep soundly tonight. Because nothing, neither the life nor death, nothing in all creation can separate you from Christ's love. As we were singing this morning, no power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love. Hearing, held. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you hold your sheep. We thank you that all those who look to you, who look to you and cry out for help, for someone to rescue us, for someone to lead us, We thank you that you meet us in this way. You promise to hold us so tightly that nothing can snatch us away from your love. Lord, I pray for each one of us here tonight, especially for those tonight who are doubting, for those who don't feel held. Pray that we may look at our lives and see Yes, we do. We do want to listen to you. We do want to follow you. And we pray that we might be reminded of your great love, your commitment to hold all those who come to you and never let us go. Lord, we pray that we might grow in our appreciation and in our assurance as we walk in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.